Well, take a Bible and have it ready to look at a number of passages this morning. Normally, we preach through books or specific passages, and we make the main point of that passage the main point of the sermon, but occasionally we'll break from that pattern and make observations from a number of Bible passages in order to address a particular topic. And the topic I'll address this morning is personhood, preborn children, and our role as a local church in caring for them. This is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a day we do set aside to, uh, annually to speak directly to the church about the darkness of abortion And the light of Jesus Christ that shines into that darkness. And about ways that we're morally obligated to respond as a church in this dark world of abortion. Friday will be the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. 43 years ago, the Supreme Court legalized elective abortion. They forced every state to give to every woman the free access to abort their children their preborn children on demand. And that decision has now provided legal protection for the killing of almost 59 million babies. The evil was further exposed this past year as 10 undercover videos against Planned Parenthood were released by the Center for Medical Progress, the contents of which are too shameful to mention in this setting. In the face of this kind of evil, we need guidance on how to respond. Uh, If we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, as Ephesians 5.11 says, then we need to be equipped to do so. And that's my aim this morning, to equip the church with God's word in relation to abortion and uh, to... Protecting preborn children. I don't want to raise up a generation uh, that just regurgitates their parents' positions on things and their church leaders' positions on things without having any idea where it comes from in the Bible. But before I spend some time equipping you on this topic, I need to spend some time preparing us or preparing you to cover this topic. And I want to begin with what's of first importance, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm teaching on a topic with full knowledge of people in this room who've had an abortion or who've counseled girlfriends to have an abortion or who've used birth control methods that are abortifacient. And sometimes you feel shame before God and others, fearful of judgment, trapped in guilt. You feel grief over the consequences of your decision, anger at others in your life who deceived you along the way, and even depression over the seemingly endless cycle of gnawing memories. And a message like this is not easy to bear. 
And perhaps you didn't even want to come today. But I am glad you're here. And I want to say to you first that God knows you intimately. He knows your sins and your past. And your struggles and your tears and your longings and your mess. And He has loved you still and sent you an all-sufficient Savior. The Bible tells us that God loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us by sending His only Son to die under the punishment we deserved, whether that was for abortion or anger, murder or murmuring. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ took all your sins, including the sins bound up with an abortion, and He condemned sin, that sin, in His flesh. He became a shameful spectacle on the cross so you would be free from shame and receive honor on the last day. He bore the punishment so you no longer have to fear judgment but have peace with God. He provides you forgiveness and cleansing and righteousness so you can stand before God cleared of your guilt, washed from your sin and free to love others. And Jesus rose again as the firstborn so that you would be his new creation. The old has passed away, brothers and sisters, and the new has come. The new has come for you. If you trust in Jesus, you are a new creation. The things we cover today, yes, they will likely remind you of the true nature of your sin and its gravity before God. But Jesus still remains the Savior of your life. You can run to Him with your guilt and find assurance for forgiveness and even help living for Him as His new creation. And that means that these words today are meant to equip you to promote the order of the new creation of which you've already been made a part of by the Lord Jesus. And as your pastor, I count each of you as a partner in God's grace as we learn how to live in this world and interact with the world about abortion. Second, when I use the word abortion... I'm talking about the intentional premature expulsion of a preborn child through surgical or chemical procedures. Sometimes it's called elective abortion. And we're asking the Bible to tell us if it's morally right or wrong to intentionally end the life of a preborn child at any stage following conception. Third, God reveals himself in Scripture as the sovereign Lord of everything. And that includes things that are very personal to us. God made all of Adam's parts and all of Eve's parts and all of our parts. He commanded Abraham to circumcise every male in his family line. That shows lordship over the most intimate body parts. 
Or take the woman in Matthew's gospel who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And when she touches the hem of Jesus' robe, his power heals her insides. That's close. That shows a divine interest and involvement in the most intimate areas of our lives. God is Lord over our bodies. Therefore, we should listen to what he has to say about preborn children and abortion. It's arrogant to speak first and primarily of my body, my choice. Or it's my uterus. The Bible teaches that we belong first to our Creator. We are stewards of all that He gives us inside and out. And then fourth, some churches in recent decades have opted not to take a position on abortion. They argue, even based on the principle of sola scriptura, that since the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn abortion, then we shouldn't take a stand on it. But that's not what the principle of Sola Scriptura teaches. The Bible also doesn't say anything about me running my Jeep into your living room. But there are really clear indications that that would not be loving your neighbor as yourself. Sola Scriptura doesn't restrict us to uh, to taking a stand only on what's explicitly commanded or prohibited. Rather, it teaches us that the Scriptures alone give us divine words... And as divine words, the scriptures are the final rule for the church's faith and practice. The question the church must ask then in relation to a topic like abortion is this. Do these divine words help us understand the personhood and the intrinsic value of a preborn human being? And if the scriptures indicate, whether explicitly or implicitly, that a preborn human being is a person from conception and possesses intrinsic value as God's image bearer, then all the other commandments apply to that preborn child. Like, you shall not murder, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So having said all that, let me now take you to a few places in the Bible that imply that preborn children are moral persons. They have legal value and they have intrinsic value as God's image bearers and therefore deserve our care and protection. Let's go first to Judges chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. An angel comes to Samson's mother before she, while, while she's still barren and, and says this. Behold, this is chapter 13, verse 3. Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. And eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
Now, if we go back in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 6, we will find that the Nazarite vow was something voluntary by a man who was mature enough to make such a decision. But God has a different plan for Samson. His plan is to make Samson a Nazarite even from the point of conception. That's why God tells the mother to go ahead and start observing the terms of the Nazarite vow. Drink no wine, eat nothing unclean. Why would the mother have to start observing these rites? Well, Samson will be a Nazarite from conception. And what does this imply? Well, someone has to be a person in order to be a Nazarite. And if God is making Samson a Nazarite from the point of conception, then it seems to follow that God counts Samson as a person from the point of his conception. That's not the point of this passage. But this passage does reflect this underlying assumption that a child and human being is God's special creation from the point of conception. He can even make him a Nazarite at that point if he wants to. Now turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, David is confessing his sin to God and crying out for God to cleanse him and forgive him. And if you look at verse 5, it goes like this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Something to remember is that sin is always personal in the Bible. It's not a, a property of things. It's a property of people. Um, it's personal separation from God that we all experience simply because of our link with the person of Adam. We inherit Adam's guilt and we're born with his sinful nature That's Romans 5.12. So if sin is personal and David is saying that he is a sinner from the point of conception, then it follows that the Bible views David as a person from the point of conception. And then Psalm 139, which Meg read for us earlier. This is page 522 in... The Pew Bible. Let's look at verses 13 to 16. Uh, David says this, For you formed my inward parts. And as we read through this, just notice the, the personal pronouns that David is using throughout. The first person pronouns here. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet There was none of them. 
David doesn't say that God knit together some clumps of tissue that wasn't yet David or that would later become David. God knitted David together. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David describes his preborn state in ways that are fully personal. My inward parts, my frame, I was being made. David's words imply that we should view preborn children as God's special creation. I was being made. It's the Creator who makes the children in the womb. And as God's special creation, they have personhood and intrinsic value. Another one is Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 44. Luke chapter 1, this is the birth narrative of Jesus, according to Luke. Uh, The angel comes, Mary is going to uh, conceive Jesus by the Holy Spirit. In verse uh, 36, Mary learns that Elizabeth, her relative, is in her old age and has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So she's 24 weeks pregnant. And then we get this in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Remember, this is a preborn child at 24 weeks old. Verse 41, And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So Elizabeth's 24-week preborn child, notice that he's called the baby twice. And the Greek word behind the baby is the same Greek word that's behind the baby when Jesus is laying in the manger in chapter 2, verse 16. So John inside the womb and Jesus outside the womb, they're both called the baby. Seems to say that the Bible thinks the same of the child outside the womb as it does the Bible, I mean the child inside the womb. They are treated equally. In other words, it's not just fetal tissue, it's not just product of conception, it's the baby in my womb. And it's a baby with personal feelings, in this case, joy. The baby kicks for joy in response to Mary's greeting. If anything, medical research on what babies can sense in the womb has only continued to confirm what the Bible already assumes. Ultrasound technology, for example, has shown us that at 16 weeks, a baby can discern sounds, and at eight weeks old, a preborn child can suck his thumb and move his tongue around and feel pain. 
Then finally, let's look at one more. We'll go backwards this time to Exodus chapter 21. Maybe the passage that's the clearest implication. Exodus 21. This is verses 22 to 25. Page 62 in the, in the Pew Bible. Exodus 21, verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now this passage presents us with two situations where a pregnant woman is accidentally hit during a scuffle and in the first situation the woman gets hit and the injury causes premature labor but there's no harm done either to the mom or to the child. And in that situation the father names a penalty and the, and the man who caused the premature labor must pay the penalty with the judge's approval. The point is that both the pregnant woman and the preborn child are considered legal persons under the protection of the law. The second situation, though, goes even further and shows us to what extent the law values both the pregnant woman and the preborn child. In the second situation, this is verse 23 to 25, there is harm done to either the pregnant woman or the preborn child, and when harm is done to either of them, the severest of consequences apply. The highest penalty, of course, would be life for life. If the man accidentally killed the woman or her preborn child, it's a capital offense. So the penalty for harming the mother or the preborn child is the same. Again, the point is that the law views both the pregnant woman and the preborn child as persons with legal value, and the law does what it can to protect them even to the degree of life for life. But think about this with me. This law applies the penalty of life for life in the case of accidentally harming the preborn child. With abortion, we're talking about intentionally ending the life of a preborn child, which only compounds the punishment. In fact, if this law is recognizing the preborn child as a person deserving legal protection, even to the degree of life for life, then we have every reason to believe that this law is in place because even a preborn child bears the image of God. And I say that because God established this life for life consequence even after the flood in Genesis 9 6, which is our last text, text we'll go to if you go. There with me, Genesis 9, 6. 
He's brought Noah and his family through the flood. Now he's, we've got some recreation going on, new people starting afresh. And in verse 6, we get, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And the reason for it is, For God made man in his own image. For God made man in his own image. So God wove into the moral fabric of his creation severe consequences for taking human life because humans bear the image of God. This one here in Genesis 9-6 is just pulling from the other texts we get along the way with uh, like Genesis 1, 27 and 28 where God creates the man and woman in his image. Genesis 5, 5, Adam, that image of God is passed on from generation to generation through Adam. And this law that we read in Exodus 21 is building on that moral framework and saying the same applies to humans in the womb. They have intrinsic value as being human beings who bear God's image and they are persons to be valued and protected and therefore we should do all we can to prevent accidental harm and we should do all we can to stop intentional killing as in the case of elective abortion. And if anything has changed for us Christians under the new covenant versus the old covenant... Love would teach us to go even further. Love, which is the fulfillment of the law, would teach us to go even further. The love demonstrated in Jesus brings out the true goal of commands like the one we read in in Exodus 21. When we see Jesus, who fulfills all that the law was pointing toward, when we see him giving up his life to protect us when we were helpless and vulnerable and weak, how much more are we obligated under the new covenant to protect others who are helpless and vulnerable and weak, like a pregnant woman or a preborn child? So what we have seen is that the, uh, the Bible does imply some things about preborn children. The Bible implies that from the moment of conception, preborn children are moral and legal persons who have intrinsic value as God's special image bearers, and therefore we should do all we can to nurture and protect them. And any deliberate act to end the life of a preborn child amounts to murder. And if there are disabilities detected in utero who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or blind? Or seeing. Is it not I, the Lord? That's how God puts it to Moses in Exodus 4.11. Even the disabled bear God's image and must be protected. 
Now, other ethical questions do enter the picture in the extremely rare case of an ectopic pregnancy. When the embryo implant somewhere outside the uterus is unable to survive and barring miraculous resolution, the mother's life is in jeopardy. In that extremely rare situation, two lives are at stake. And we must do all we can to save as many lives as possible. But keeping that extremely rare exception in mind, we've asked the Bible to tell us if it's morally right or wrong to terminate life in the womb. And the Bible implies that it's morally wrong. All children in the womb bear the image of God, are valuable as persons, and to terminate their life is murder. So if that's true, what's our role as a church? This isn't just true for us privately. This is true, period. It's true everywhere. Christianity is true in all areas of life, not just personal conscience. The message you heard today isn't just something we keep to ourselves, but a message that ought to influence what we think in the public arena. So how can we respond? I have eight to share with you. But before I share them, let me say this. None of us can do them all. But all of us can do some. None of us can do them all, but all of us can do some. So number one. One of the greatest things we can do is pray and preach. Pray and preach. Ephesians 6 teaches us that the church penetrates the darkness through the preaching of the gospel and praying in the Holy Spirit for God to act. We don't have the power to change the hearts of people in the abortion industry We don't have the power to change the moral tide of our culture, but God does, and He has determined to change the hearts of men through our preaching and through our praying. So pray for the protection of the unborn. Pray for your neighbors to change. Pray for the girls that meet Mary Ledbetter from week to week at the Pregnancy Help Center, that they keep their child's life. Pray for the leaders of this nation as 1 Timothy chapter 2 commands us. And then preach the message of the gospel. Only the gospel message, not the pro-life political agenda, can make people new and remove their bias towards Scripture and help them choose what is right in God's sight. So preach the gospel. Number two, educate yourself and and the others in your life. Part of the mission of the church, according to Ephesians 5.11, is to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. That can only happen through educating people about these matters and speaking into the conversations at work and at the coffee shop and when we have people in our homes and when they friend us on Facebook. Whatever medium, seek to educate the others around you. So, read up on this subject. Read up on what medical research is finding about preborn life. 
Understand the ways that the Bible promotes the sanctity of life and then educate others. If you have children, start there. Start teaching them from a very young age that God values all of life from conception to natural death. Help them understand the intrinsic value they have as humans created in God's image. Show them the facts of development of the unborn. If you're a parent, you're already doing this from day to day. It's not something else you add. It's who you are as a parent. It's part of your day. Use things uh, also like your blog and Facebook. I know for all the criticism I have of Facebook, use it. And use Twitter and whatever else to spread the word about the evil of abortion and the sanctity of human life. Promote things on there like the Pregnancy Help Center. Give a link every once in a while there. Uh, Post good articles that you might read from places like the Gospel Coalition or the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Some of you are really good writers. Uh, Write to local newspapers. Write things for our church. And if the local newspapers snub your article, meet the editor face-to-face and explain that you would expect a good newspaper to allow both sides to present their views. Write letters to your government representatives. Take points from sermons like this and others and mail them off occasionally. So educate yourself and the others in your life. Number three, don't participate in the abortion culture. Don't participate or buy into the abortion culture. Part of the church's mission, according to Ephesians 5.11, is not participating in the unfruitful works of darkness. And yes, that means the obvious, like choosing not to end the life of your preborn child or, or counseling others to do the same. But it also means not participating in the less obvious things, like not using birth control methods that are abortifacient in nature, or not using the artificial reproductive technologies that threaten the sanctity of life. If human life really begins at conception then we should do all we can to protect the conceived but preborn child at every stage, which also means we've got to be asking our doctors more questions. We have to be asking our brothers and sisters in the church more questions. We have to be researching things for ourselves so that all along the way, God's Word determines our sexual and reproductive ethics and not just our feelings or our wants even as good as some of those wants might be, like wanting to bear children. But even deeper than that, and something that affects more than just someone's stance on abortion, is this. We cannot join the abortion culture in bowing to self and the God of convenience. We cannot join the abortion culture in bowing to self And the God of convenience. When we look at the cross of Christ, we learn very quickly that true love is never convenient. True love will cost the self everything. We must die to self in order to truly live. 
when children are viewed as an inconvenience, when children frustrate our plans, when children interrupt our dreams, when parents complain about how much their children cost, subtly we're giving in to the same mentality behind the abortionist culture that views children as a commodity instead of a blessing from God. Instead of crucifying our children's well-being at the altar of selfish convenience, let us remember that the cross of Christ, that, that in the cross of Christ, God crucified our slavery to selfish convenience. God crucified that old self. So now we are actually free to live for Him at all costs and serve our children's well-being sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 5, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Number four, be a family to pregnant women and their babies. Be a family to pregnant women and their babies. Through Jesus Christ, God has made us a family. We're not just another anti-abortion organization. We exist to bring light and life to a world that sits in darkness and death. Our family should show the world that a countercultural gospel builds a countercultural community where the greatest become servants of all, including servants of pregnant women, women and their children, and even including becoming servants to those who've already had an abortion. We who know the forgiveness of our sins should be the first to extend mercy to women who've already had an abortion. We're the only family that can hold out true and lasting hope for them in the gospel message. We're the only family that can bring the balm of the gospel to their gaping wounds. The church should be a home for women grieving over the consequences of their actions. There's a reason God saved a murderer like Paul and made him an apostle of the church. And 1 Timothy 1.16 says it was for this reason, I received mercy that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God saves murderers to display his perfect patience so that more people will believe in Jesus for eternal life. The church should also provide a context for healing and restoration for victims of rape. I've heard of some churches even offering assistance for for victims of rape. A few women in the church will will get together and and teach these, these other women who come to the church various trades that they can do from home And the income that they make off the trades that they could do from home not only provides an alternative to welfare, but also allows the young mothers to work from home so they can care for their child and finish school and and so forth. The church can also be a family who provides help for those who are pregnant. 
and facing the mountainhood of motherhood. Did I say the mountainhood? The mountain of motherhood. We want to provide help for those who are pregnant and facing the mountain of motherhood and counsel to those women running away from that mountain to abortion. We should, we, should, we should even be ready and available to adopt their children when they come to us for help. When we ask them, hey, have you considered adoption instead of abortion? There should be a real sense that we as a church can stand behind that question when we ask it. And take responsibility to find that child a home if it's not with his or her mother. Some of us may not be able to adopt that's understandable, but others of us can. And, and you guys even set aside money annually to help members adopt children. And in that way, many of you are already doing something. You are making a contribution. Number five, keep celebrating new life together and grieve when it's lost. Keep celebrating new life together. And grieve when it's lost. One tradition I love in this church is how, how early families let us know that they're pregnant. They want others to rejoice with them and pray for them. So we keep our pregnant mothers before the body in the weekly e-news because we want people praying for them and rejoicing with them. Uh, next Sunday we will, be, uh, will be the Sunday when we pray for parents with new children. So if you're a member and you want to participate, send your information to, to Chris Cronenworth. He's in the sound booth right now. Chris Cronenworth on the city. Whether through birth or adoption, the Lord has given us new life. And we want to commit ourselves again to, to caring for these little ones. Having these kinds of things in the, in the church periodically cultivates thanksgiving to God for the new life that he gives. But we also must weep with those who weep. Something the Lord, sometimes the Lord sees it fitting to take the life that He gives. The days He numbers for our children sometimes amount to only weeks or months in the womb. And so we grieve with our brothers and sisters in their loss. We grieve because we once had so much joy and perhaps we did hear a heartbeat and we did see a hand and now it's gone. The baby was taken. When Rachel and I went through two miscarriages before we had our first child, it was very clear that the people of Redeemer valued life with us. You came alongside us so that we didn't grieve alone and without hope. And so it should always be for our families and their loss. Because you see, when we celebrate God's good gift of life, and also grieve when it's taken, we bear witness that God's image is valuable and death is an enemy we long for Jesus to put under his feet once and for all. Number six, support crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life. Support crisis pregnancy centers that are pro-life. This is actually one good and very effective way to live out our pro-life 
ethic. And it's been pretty amazing to sit through and read books this week that were written in 1975 and 1978. Uh, Francis Schaeffer and some other guy who was the Surgeon General back then. Um, Everett who? Everett Coop. Everett Coop. Um, stole them out of Brian's library this week. You know, and seeing these guys saying to the church, hey, get some pregnancy uh, crisis pregnancy centers going that are, that are pro-life. And, and, and now to look after all these years and to see so many of them peppered throughout uh, the United States. Just an amazing work of God there from that time till now. And it's a very effective way to, to live out our pro-life ethic uh, before the world. So support these centers with finances and services that you can provide. As you can imagine, many of these uh, pro-life pregnancy centers don't get the kind of government funding that something like a pro-abortion Planned Parenthood gets. And much of the time, they don't want government funding either with all of its restrictions. Uh, I was talking to Dale last night. One of the reasons they don't choose to do uh, government funding at the Pregnancy Help Center is because they don't want anybody coming in saying, hey, you can't tell these women about Jesus. They want to tell these women about Jesus. It's one of the aims. Uh, So one way we can support these organizations that operate on a shoestring budget is by giving them our money and and you do this already some with the Pregnancy Help Center that's off of Camp Bowie. Uh, in fact, if you bring your um, brown bag lunch next Sunday, Delana Brooks, who is the executive director of the PHC, will actually be coming and sharing with you how the Lord is using the PHC and how you can get involved uh, more. That'll be after the service next Sunday. We can also support these centers by volunteering our time. So if you're gifted at cleaning facilities or counseling women, maybe you even have a nursing background, this might be one outlet for you to use your gifts. Uh, One way that Dale uses his leadership gifts is by serving on the board of the PHC. One way that Mary Ledbetter... Uh, uses her gifts is by counseling the girls that come to her for a sonogram. It serves as a great segue into gospel conversations. Number seven, become a sidewalk counselor. Become a sidewalk counselor. Stand in front of abortion clinics and seek out ways to sit down and talk with girls who are coming in for an abortion. Again, this is a, a, actually a very effective way. It, it doesn't seem like that to those who are doing it from day to day, um, but it's actually very effective. I was reading several testimonies of, of other churches. Uh, Emmanuel Baptist, for example, in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, does this, and they actually partner with other churches and have people in a rotation uh, all week long doing this uh, and, 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 see, uh, and see results over time. Um, yeah, so get a small group together. Have some literature ready that educates uh, girls on, on the alternative 
to abortion and even the dangers of abortion and its lasting consequences, which the abortion clinic's not going to tell them about. Find out when women usually arrive, and as they walk into the clinic, introduce yourself. Tell them why you're there. Be transparent. Ask them if they'd like to hear some, about some alternatives to abortion. Ask them if they've considered the life of the baby or just need to talk to someone for a minute. If they speak with you, share with them the hope that Jesus offers. Share about the baby being created in God's image. Share what Jesus offers them through the local church. Point them to the Pregnancy Help Center and even offer to drive them there if they need help. And then don't let them leave without praying for them and getting their contact information for for follow-up. This doesn't take a lot of people to operate even if there's only one person doing it, it's, that's one person will stand behind and praise God for the opportunities that, that he or she has given. And finally, number eight, vote for pro-life candidates. Vote for pro-life candidates and withhold support from those who are not pro-life. The political question that people must answer is this. Should government make laws to protect the lives of the unborn and punish those who do not? And the Bible implies, yes, the government should. Our government obviously hasn't done that. But as a U.S. citizen, we have the tremendous privilege to vote our convictions. And if these convictions about the personhood of preborn children matter, then we should vote for candidates who will seek to uphold them at the national level and at the state level. Texas Right to Life can help you at the state level if you check out their their website. John Sego used used to be a member here, is part of Texas Right for Life. Check out Texas Right for Life and that will tell you the folks who are truly pro-life and not just the folks who say they're pro-life just to win a vote. And then at the national level, vote for a pro-life president and for pro-life senators who will then appoint and confirm pro-life Supreme Court justices who will make it their aim to overturn Roe versus Wade. So those are eight. I haven't mentioned all the possible ways to nurture and protect pre-born children, but these are good starting places for us. Consider them as you go home. Talk to them with uh, talk about them with your care group members. Partner with folks from other churches if you want to, if that would help. And begin praying about how your gifts and services and resources might be used to protect preborn children and help stop the assault on God's preborn image bearers. The task is daunting, the darkness is thick, but Jesus is risen above all, rule, authority, and power. And he promises to be with us to the end. Why don't we bow for a word of prayer?